SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, and welcome to Night TV Radio. Coming up in your program this Monday, May 15. Well, last week our welcoming Australia Symposium was held in Melbourne, an event whose organisers aim to cultivate a culture of welcome and create a future where people, where all people have equal opportunity and it means people of all backgrounds. In the sidelines of the symposium, we spoke to Professor Chelsea Wetego, who delivered a First Nations keynote speech at the event in which she debunked with compelling arguments the myth of Australia as a country of a fair goal. Also on NITV Radio today, we have a selection of stories from NITV, including some of the findings last week of the inquest into the death in custody of Wayne Fella Morrison in South Australia. Also in the program today, we have uh, findings of a new study currently underway that uh, hopes to paint a more accurate picture of disability in Australia. These stories and more coming to you after the latest news on NITV Radio. And today we are broadcasting from NAM on the Kulin Nation. Bertrand Tungandami, I'm Bertrand Tungandami. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy erected outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. Another Indigenous man dies in custody in Victoria. Treasurer Jim Chalmers begins a countrywide trip to pitch his second budget. And the Move Forward Opposition Party itches towards an election win in Thailand. man has died in custody in Victoria. The 70-year-old Torres Strait Islander man died in hospital last week. Victoria's Corrections Minister Enver Erdogan confirmed the death during a hearing of the Euroc Justice Commission this morning. It brings to 34 the number of deaths in custody in Victoria since the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Mr. Erdogan has apologized to the Euro hearing for the state's role in indigenous deaths in custody, admitting most of them were the result of critical failings in the state's institutions. Treasurer Jim Chalmers is setting off on a countrywide trip to pitch his second budget as a poll shows not all voters are convinced of its merits. 
Dr. Charles Mars begins a five-city a five city trip today to speak to business groups, unions and communities starting in Sydney before moving on to other capital cities. A news poll by the Australian newspaper has found only one in eight voters are convinced the Albanese government's fast full budget since the election will reduce inflation. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says the Labour government has reprioritized Medicare, investing nearly $6 billion over five years to strengthen Medicare in the recent budget. The Prime Minister says the previous Liberal government undermined the bulk billing system and the Labour government is now reinvesting to increase the availability and accessibility of general practitioners. Had Labour not been elected, we would have seen a further undermining of Medicare, a further undermining of bulk billing. Uh, we know that for a long period of time, one of the great divides in Australian <coughs> politics uh, was John Howard promising to get rid of Medicare. Uh, and uh, since then, they decided that the Australian people had such support for Medicare, they couldn't promise that. So instead, we've seen it undermined over the previous decade. What we've been doing is repairing it and that is uh, a centrepiece of our budget, along with our other measures. Trade Minister Don Farrell has vowed to persevere with Chinese counterparts in a bid to get billions of dollars worth of trade restrictions removed from Australian products. Following his return from Beijing, where he met with Chinese Commerce Minister Wang Wentao, Senator Farrell says he is still optimistic of restrictions on items such as barley, wine and lobsters being removed. Despite the in-person meeting in China, Senator Farrell told ABC Radio it will take time for trade relations to return to normal. Well, my objective in this process is to simply persevere and persist so that at the end of the day, um, all of uh, the trade impediments uh, are removed. The problems aren't solved overnight. We want uh, Australian food and wine producers to get their products back into China and we want the Chinese consumers to have the uh, advantage of uh, the wonderful Australian products. In a sign of improving relations between the two countries, China's Foreign Minister Qin Gang is set to visit Australia in the coming months. The trip has yet to be formally announced by Beijing. The government has announced $86.5 million to re-establish a national anti-scam centre to protect the millions of Australians who lose billions of dollars each year. Australians lost $3 billion to scams in 2022 alone, with the average loss from a scam being $20,000. Financial Services Minister Stephen Jones says the centre will fight scammers and prevent fraud before it happens and encourage people to report scamming. Over $3 billion a year is being lost to scams and consumer frauds, and until now, too often, Australians, households and small businesses have had to fight them on their own. Well, that's going to stop. Our policy to fight scams, whole of government policy, is about ensuring that we are taking the fight up to scammers to ensure that consumers are better protected. The Albanese government has pledged $236 million of funding over 10 years to set up a national flood warning network. The network aims to provide reliable access to flood forecasts and warnings. Due to the, 
Due to the high risk of flood in Queensland, the government says work in Australia's most disaster-prone state will be prioritised. Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek says the network will address problems with flood gauges, ensuring people will be able to access reliable information in real time during extreme weather events. We see flood gauges across Queensland that are owned by uh, different levels of government. Uh, In fact, there are 1,400 flood gauges owned by 41 different councils. Some of the flood gauges are owned by different organisations, private organisations or individuals. They don't talk to each other. Many of them are very old. Uh, They're at the end of their useful life. Uh, Many of them are not working properly. The readings are inconsistent. They're just not good enough. Thousands of landowners have reached a multi-million dollar settlement with the Commonwealth over dangerous PFAS firefighting foam that contaminated their properties. About 30,000 landowners were involved in the class action that argued that the Defence Department did not adequately prevent toxic chemicals in the foam from escaping and contaminating their neighbouring soil and groundwater. The parties have written in principal agreement in the federal court for a sum of $132 million and the agreement covers seven sites near Royal Australian Air Force bases at Richmond and Wagga Wagga in New South Wales, Wodonga in Victoria, Boltsbrook in Western Australia, Darwin in the Northern Territory, Edinburgh in South Australia and Townsville in Queensland. Federal Housing Minister Julie Collins has warned opponents of the government's multi-billion dollar fund to build more homes to get out of the way as negotiations stall on the issue. The $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund remains stuck in Parliament with both the Coalition and the Greens not backing the proposal. The fund would see 30 30,000 new social and affordable homes built in the next five years, but the Greens have urged more immediate action to solve the housing crisis, including a rent freeze. Ms. Collins tells the ABC the housing situation is too important for there to be roadblocks to more investment. So I would say to Liberal Senators and to Green Senators in the Senate, uh, we took this to the last election, we're trying to legislate it and they should get out of the way because there are too many people in Australia today that are relying on those homes. There are too many Australians that are doing it tough that need us to get on with the job. In Thailand, general elections have taken place to renew the 500 seats of the lower house of the parliament. The move forward opposition party is leading, followed by another opposition party, the Four Thai, both of whom are expected to get more than 100 seats, were ahead of the United Thai Nation Party of incumbent Prime Minister Prayut Chan-o-cha. Move forward leader Peter Limjarunat is widely popular among younger voters and has vowed to reform the anti-Les Majesté laws that had been used in the past by Mr Chan-o-cha to silence opponents. I think that's part of uh, the uh, promises that we've made to the, to the Thai public and it's part of a law that has to be amended in the parliament. So uh, no matter what, we will push for the royal uh, less majestic law reform in the parliament. So it's not going to be uh, a question whether to do it or not, we'll push for it. Move, move forward and full Thai will need to form a coalition in order to challenge Prayut Chan Ocha.
Tukie appears headed for a runoff presidential election with the parties of uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan and opposition rival Kemal Kilchdaroglu, each claiming the lead. However, sources in both camps have admitted they may not clear the 50% threshold to win outright. Both sides have dismissed the other side's count with no official results announced. Mr. Kilchadoru, who leads the Social Democratic Republican People's Party, or CHP, is accusing Mr. Erdogan's far-right AK party of delaying the results at a number of ballot boxes that favor the opposition. The AK party members are trying to block the system with repeated objections at the ballot boxes where our vote rates are significantly high. For example, there are persistent objections to 300 ballot boxes in Ankara and 783 ballot boxes in Istanbul. There are ballot boxes of which the results were contested six times and some 11 times. What you block is the will of Turkey. You cannot prevent it from happening with repeated objections. And to sport in AFL, and Craig McRae has lauded Mason Cox's influence after the Collingwood hero produced one of his finest performances, firing his side to a 65-point thrashing of JWS. The Magpies were overwhelmed overwhelmed the opponents with Cox, one of 10 goal kickers in the comprehensive 120-55 win. The Magpies now sit one win clear on top of the AFL ladder and ride a five-match winning streak into a meeting with traditional foes Carlton in round 10. Cox starred in his second game back from a lacerated spleen and says he and his team are now looking ahead to this much-anticipated challenge with Carlton. Not many people get to experience this, I think, and it's, it's one of the reasons I came to such a big club, to be able to get the energy that does come from a massive MCG that's just a sold-out crowd, and, and next week will be that. So it's going to be a, it's going to be a great day. Obviously, it's a massive rivalry with Carlton, and uh, yeah, it's one you always kind of circle on the calendar, so it's going, to be, uh, it's going to be a massive one, so come out, buy a ticket, wherever it is, if there's any left. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. And now having a look at the weather around the country, Broome, sunny 31, Perth, partly cloudy 21, Adelaide, sunny 22, Melbourne, similar conditions 21, Hobart, late shower 02, 19, Albury, Wodonga, sunny 18, Canberra, cloud clearing 18 degrees, Wollongong, a shower 02, 20 degrees, Sydney, showers 21, Newcastle, similar conditions 22, Brisbane, showers 24, Townsville, mostly sunny 28, Cairns, partly cloudy 20. 29, Alice Springs, cloudy 19, Darwin, partly cloudy 32, and the Torres Strait Islands, a mostly cloudy day, the top of 29 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. And you're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from Nam on the Kulin Nation this Monday afternoon. Coming up next, well, have a conversation with Professor Chelsea Watego to explore her First Nations keynote speech titled Another Day in the Colony, delivered last week at the Welcoming Australia Symposium. A 
speech in which she debunks with compelling arguments some myths about Australia as a land of a fair go. Chelsea Watego, Professor of Indigenous Health and Executive Director of Queensland University's Garumba Institute, is joining us on NITV Radio in the sidelines of the Welcoming Australia Symposium. Professor Watego, thanks for joining us. Now, the symposium, Welcoming Australia, aims to cultivate a culture of welcome and create a future where people of all backgrounds have equal opportunity in a thriving and culturally diverse community. Yet, Australia's relationship with First Nations people is still lacking, I'd say. Can we deduct that um, this is the message you wanted to carry in uh, another day in uh, the colony, your keynote speech at uh, the symposium? Well, I guess I wanted to call into question the very premise of a symposium that's called Welcoming Australia. I mean, I'm not sure how welcoming this place has really been, but also... Who were they to welcome? Who were they welcoming to where? Um, and uh, so, you know, it was just sort of a bit, bit of a provocation. And I drew on um, chapter one of Another Day in the Colony to speak about the power of place and the power of blackfellas' relationship to place. And it was interesting. We had um, uh, the immigration minister via video speak about Australia as being the most. Um, generous humanitarian refugee programs which to be frank is is not true and is a lie really i don't think it's been welcoming for indigenous peoples in this place but also for um, those who are seeking to call this place home either i guess calling australia the most welcoming country for refugees can be debated considering australia has also ushered in some of the harshest conditions like uh, uh, Manus Island, uh, Nauru, and um, yeah, and more, which I believe that Australia is the only country in the world with uh, an offshore migrant processing system uh, like Nauru and uh, Manus. Uh, that alone challenges the idea that, um, yeah, we're the most welcoming. In some aspects, yes. In others, maybe not. But the relationship with First Nations people is, I guess, much more problematic, going all the way back to the beginning of colonization. Well, exactly. And I guess what I try to do today is to show um, the everydayness of um, and the ongoing nature of colonialism, that it's not just a past event, but an ongoing process in which there is still this desire to erase um, Indigenous peoples um, and undermine our uh, relationship to country and our rights as First Nations peoples. And so, I, um, yeah, I guess today try to illuminate the different ways in which that, that happens um, uh, because typically people think of colonisation as a past event, not as an ongoing structure of oppression that um, continues to dispossess Indigenous peoples. In the Q&A session uh, that followed, were the participants very engaged with the... Um poignant questions as uh, the message itself um, I wasn't there so uh, I missed out on the debate and uh, I was, didn't have a chance to be there yeah well what was surprising was there was really really great engagement and I think because there were a number of uh, people of color in the room what we end up having a conversation is is really thinking about instead of a welcoming Australia how might we think about solidarity and sovereignty and if we operated from that basis, how the practice might look very different. 
um, and require us to be in proper relationship uh, with each other, understanding our shared struggles, but also the unique struggles and rights of First Nations peoples here as as the foundation from which to operate. Yeah. And it was received really well. I think it was it was actually I was really pleasantly surprised at the engagement and the. Um, energy in the room to rethink this kind of multiculturalism, diversity, equity, inclusion agenda and, and call it out for what it is, which is really a white supremacist agenda that often brutalises Indigenous peoples and, and people of colour. Um, so it was really great to see that there was a preparedness to think critically about this space. Looking at the website of uh, the Welcoming Australia Symposium, uh, it really seeks to paint a picture of a country of successful migration, integration, diversity, offering equal opportunities uh, where everything goes well. Land of a fair go, all that kind of, you know, it's the, the, the lies it tells about itself as a nation. And, um, you know, I think it's important to disrupt those lies, but also then, in doing so, think about, well, how do we be in proper relationship with each other? And what might that look like? So there's possibilities in the critique of it all to, to rethink, well, how do we behave with each other? Um, and what, you know, I was asked about multiculturalism um, and what I thought about it. And I had to remind the audience that this continent has always been multicultural. It's made up of hundreds of nations, of unique uh, uh, cultural difference and we have a multiculturalism of coexistence where one doesn't have to dominate the other and we've we've achieved that over 60,000 years um, so perhaps thinking at rethinking multiculturalism is something that has arrived here um, as something that was always here and if we look to um, First Nations peoples we might actually reconfigure the paradigm of multiculturalism as and and often multiculturalism is cast as a, uh, as a gift, uh, act of benevolence that white people afford people of colour if they meet the right requirements, if they're the model migrant. And I guess it's about contesting that. I guess a paternalistic uh, top-down approach. Also, another powerful moment of the symposium was your participation in a panel discussion together with um, Uncle Andrew Gardner and Wintan Kidane panel discussion called what's the story and uh, who is telling it can you tell us about this other panel discussion yeah look we had a bit of a yarn about the politics of changing place names um but also the possibilities of like black, black podcasting and like uh reclaiming a space to like just to exist on our own terms and so it was a really broad discussion and um yeah it was really good to come together and yeah think about the different ways in which we're reconfiguring um, uh, the power of place here in the various um, uh, pieces of work that we do. Very, very interesting conversation. Now to our listeners on NITV Radio, I'll refer you to our website, sbs.com.au slash NITV Radio, to look up another powerful conversation with Professor Chelsea Watego about two years ago. Exploring race relations together with Dr. Michaela Couch. Professor Oteko, this is a conversation where you also speak about the book that carries the same name as your keynote speech, Another Day in the Colony as well. Now, where else can one go to find uh, more of your works? Yeah, I mean, um, you can check out the archives of the Wild Black Woman podcast on AAA's website. Um, I do a lot of writing for Indigenous X, The Conversation, The Guardian, um, uh, just things that make me wild and want to 
have something to say about. Um, and there's some, I guess, public talks on YouTube. Um, one of the, I guess, uh, might be worth looking at is the Latrobe uh, racism debate. Um, that's entertaining. Um, and, yeah, a number of public lectures I've given um, are worth, might be worth checking out. Professor Otego, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio today. Thank you so much. NITV Radio. Share our stories on Facebook. Coming up next, our stories are shared from NITV. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. South Australian coroner investigating the death of an Aboriginal man in custody in 2016 has identified a litany of failures by correctional services. The death of Wayne Fella Morrison led to the burning of spit hoods in the state, but the coroner has stopped short of recommending any action against the prison guards involved and said the use of a spit hood was justified. Peter Doherty reports. They were images that shocked many and led to protests and a ban on spit hoods. Wrestled to the ground by a dozen guards after an altercation at Adelaide's Yatla Labor Prison. Wayne Feller Morrison loaded face down into a prison van, handcuffed and wearing a spit hood. After a three minute journey, he was pulled out unconscious and died three days later. The state's deputy coroner found he suffered a cardiac arrest while in the van, and while the spit hood may have contributed to his death, Mr Morrison was also suffering from stress, physical exertion and an existing heart condition. Put bluntly, it is misleading to suggest that the spit mask was a primary causative factor in Mr Morrison's death. The evidence falls far short of proof of such a fact. The guards who accompanied Mr Morrison did not give evidence during the inquest. The deputy coroner identified a litany of failures by correctional services and found the prison guards were not adequately trained in restraint or first aid. She also ruled that delays in medical treatment for Mr Morrison did not contribute to his death. The evidence does not support findings sought by counsel for the Morrison family that the delay in commencement of chest compressions caused or contributed to Mr Morrison's death. Nor does the evidence support a finding that the delay in calling an ambulance was a factor which contributed to Mr Morrison's death. Mr Morrison's family was not in court for today's findings. Their campaign for a national ban on spit hoods led to new laws in South Australia, making their use illegal. story was produced by NITV's Peter Doherty. Now, a new installation will light up part of Sydney's CBD from uh, yeah, from Friday, actually, with a group of artists coming together to create Australia's largest sustainable public artwork. The launch of the piece coincided with the World Oceans Day and is not only catching the public's eyes, but de- redirecting them to look at a bigger issue. Actual Rock has more. Shedding light on more than just art. More than a hundred artists from around the world has come together to raise awareness of the harm done to marine life by lost and discarded fishing nets. The pieces of art are beautiful. They're made from all the net and rope, but underneath there is, there is a message about this is a silent, deadly killer that lurks underneath the sea. The nets are often abandoned at sea by commercial fishing boats, what they call ghost nets. 
drifting on the currents, trapping whales, dolphins and turtles. First Nations artists from far north Queensland and the Torres Straits were involved in the project, with evidence of their own histories woven into the work. And hopefully it's passed on to our children and hopefully our children makes, makes the benefit of doing things like what we're doing now. The installation includes 11 Eagle Ray sculptures, each almost three metres wide and individually hand-stitched. The artwork has been a community effort seven months in the making. New visual languages, new stories and new narratives to bring into the public domain and that was one of the great strengths of the GhostNet Collective project. Floating high in Sydney's Exchange Square in the Barangaroo precinct, the artwork has found a permanent home, bringing an important environmental cause for our oceans to the heart of the city. Achola Rock, NITV News. Conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Now, one of Australia's most unique and iconic spaces, the Platypus, has been reintroduced into the country's oldest national park just south of Sydney. It's a major moment for the Platypus in our landmark conservation project after disappearing from the area around half a century ago. Angelica Wade reports. There had been no confirmed platypus sightings in the Royal National Park since the 1970s. But all that changed recently when four females were released, marking the first attempt at rewilding the platypus in New South Wales. Six more platypuses will be released in an effort to address increased threats to the animal due to habitat deconstruction, river degradation, feral predators and extreme weather. Tanil Hawke, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of New South Wales Centre for Ecosystem Science, says the move will also promote river conservation. So rewilding uh, the platypus is likely to become um, a really significant uh, conservation management tool in the future of this species. Um, with anticipated increases in the severity and frequency of drought, it's likely that some of their homes will dry out, uh, meaning that we will have to intervene and move those individuals to areas uh, where they can thrive. Um, and so this project is a really important stepping stone in better understanding how we do that and how we relocate those individuals so that they have a better chance of survival in the future. A recent survey from UNSW found that platypus sightings in New South Wales had declined by almost one-third over the last 30 years and their habitats had decreased by nearly a quarter. The relocation project is a collaboration between UNSW, Taronga Conservation Society Australia, World Wildlife Fund Australia and the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service. The platypuses were collected from a variety of different locations across southeastern New South Wales and tests were conducted to assess their health before relocation. Gilad Bino, a researcher from UNSW, led these expeditions. They haven't been seen here in over 50 years, um, and this has been quite a, a collective effort uh, by UNSW Sydney, Taronga Conservation Society, WWF Australia, and New South Wales Parks and Wildlife Services. So, yeah, very exciting for us uh, to see platypuses come back to the park and uh, for a thriving population here to establish themselves and for Sydney ciders to come and enjoy this amazing animal. The researchers believe that the risks leading to their disappearance have been mitigated. Each platypus will be tracked over the next two years to better understand how conservators can intervene in the event of drought, bushfire or flood. 
Renowned for its bill, webbed feet and venomous spurs, the platypus is one of only two egg-laying mammals in the world. Unlike other famous Australian animals such as the koala or kangaroo, most Australians have never seen one in the wild due to its reclusive nature and specific habitat needs. Ms Hawke says the reintroduction will also benefit other species that use the river. The idea with like reintroducing platypuses is that it does act as a flagship species, you know. It's like our freshwater koala in Australia. And so by reintroducing platypuses, we're hoping to really promote healthy rivers and, you know, the importance of conserving our rivers, um especially in an area so close to Sydney, you know, where so many people are able to come and see the direct implications of actually reintroducing an animal. And so by doing that, we're hoping that, you know, other species that occupy the same river there will really benefit from any improvements that occur because of this reintroduction. Mr Bino is hopeful the strategy will work. So we've been preparing for this project for a couple of years now. Um so there's definitely a lot of uh anxiety uh building up I feel uh, on a personal level I feel very responsible for these platypuses that were uh relocating to a new home and so I I'm you know I'm I'm hopeful and optimistic that they'll be able to establish a new and a population that would be thriving in the Royal National Park for everyone uh to enjoy. Rob Brewster from the WWF says this project marks an important commitment to the future well-being of this iconic species. We're not going to allow it to slide into extinction. We're actually going to not only conserve it, but we're going to restore it and work on strategies to get the platypus back into river ecosystems where it's dropped out from. Angelica Wait, SBS News. NITV Radio. Share our stories on Facebook. Welcome back. Now, a new initiative is underway, which it's hoped could paint a more accurate picture of disability in Australia. Advocates say government agencies don't necessarily have a complete picture of uh, what disabled Australians need or want because different departments have different information. Deborah Grog has this report. Numbers aren't always interesting for the average person, but for people in the disability community, numbers make the world go round. Kristen O'Connell recently spoke to SBS on the National Disability Insurance Scheme. I'd been hearing from other autistic people that they had had really big cuts to their plans when they were up for review, and then I was feeling pretty worried about my review and sure enough, I got a letter in the middle of January telling me that I would lose 75% of my supports with my psychologist which is my most important support. But Kristen says she's one of the lucky ones because she fought her cut all the way to the administrative appeals tribunal. After I went to the AAT, the NDIA then came forward with an offer and tried to negotiate with me over what they would fund. and provided another alternative which was to have a support coordinator instead of my clinical psychologist which is really not the same thing and is quite risky for me due to my complex mental health needs that make it more risky um in terms of managing my autism with someone who's not extremely qualified These kinds of experiences are not new. NDIS Minister Bill Shorten has previously stated he's aware of how hard some people have had to fight to access the support they need, and his belief that the whole program needs a reboot. We do need to get it back on track. It's not a financial imperative. It's core to improving outcomes 
and improving lives. Correcting course will not be easy. It'll take time and require the sort of collective effort that you Australians with disability showed during the campaign to establish the NDIS in the very first place. Debate continues to rage about who the NDIS should be for and how sustainable spending on the scheme will be in the future. It's in this climate that a new data set is being launched. Dr Ben Gauntlet is Australia's Disability Discrimination Commissioner and he's spoken at an online seminar on what is to be known as the National Disability Data Set. The National Disability Data Asset will connect existing de-identified information from government agencies. The first three areas the asset will focus on are reporting on outcomes under Australia's disability strategy and employment outcomes for people with disability. Catherine McAlpine is the CEO of Inclusion Australia, a group that represents Australians with an intellectual disability. In her presentation, she has said there is a crying need for better information. When we talk about data, we know well these days that more than one in six Australians have a disability. What's far less well known is that there are about 460,000 people who have an intellectual disability and currently we are unable to put a number on how many people with an intellectual disability are students in mainstream schools or have jobs in the open market and even the NDIA who over the past decade has amassed much data, much more data than we had before is not able to tell us how many NDIS participants experience both an intellectual disability and autism. These are very specific examples that show how currently governments don't have a complete picture of how people with disability are supported by all the different levels of government and agencies. There's already been a pilot program to connect information in five public policy test cases, but Catherine McAlpine says we already know there is room for improvement in our entire approach. Over the last few years at the Disability Royal Commission on the Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with Disabilities, we have heard terrible stories about the violence and abuse that incurs in invisible segregated settings as well as in public, as well as about preventable deaths, the criminalisation of intellectual disability and neurological diversity, especially for young First Nations people. And we sincerely hope that the disability data asset will be helpful in addressing the findings and recommendations of the Commission, again, as Ben said, by making invisible need visible through reliable data. Dr Scott Avery is an Indigenous lecturer from Western Sydney University who is also deaf. He has told the online seminar how discrimination can be experienced within Indigenous communities. There's an Aboriginal man um, who I've spoken with and he has an intellectual disability and he says, when I go shopping, um, I get confronted by security guards uh, and, then, and he said, I think he's drinking. Uh, he's, been, um, he's intoxicated. And this is a case where you have the presentation of disability in public, which is not well understood, coupled with the stereotypes around drinking uh, Aboriginal people and drinking create this socially isolating experience for that. Now, that's our community and other people might experience other forms of discrimination. Catherine McAlpine says the data has to be collected in a way that everyone will be able to understand and interpret. What we really see is that without consistent definitions, we're actually unable to find out these things. We found out during the pandemic, for example, once we went to health, 
that there was a whole lot of assumptions about where people with an intellectual disability lived that were wrong, that really impacted in the rollout of the vaccinations. So these things are really critical for governments to know and understand. For Dr Avery, there's also a need for respectful engagement and having an eye for the gaps in the numbers. And I think the ethics of inclusion is not just about what is in the data, but understanding as who is not as in the data to make sure that when when we're using this data asset to make decisions that affect the lives of the disability community, we really need to push our understanding to make sure who not is just who is in the room, but whose voices are not in the room. That sense of fairness and completeness is what disability advocates have long been pushing for. For Kristen O'Connell and others on the NDIS, there's too often a sense that they are viewed as a financial burden rather than someone who deserves some help to live their life. Kristen wants disabled Australians to have confidence in the systems provided to support them. When you interact with welfare supports in this country, you are trained to feel that they're designed to hurt you. And when you have a positive outcome, you just feel that it can never last. So I will never feel confident that my future will improve or even feel as stable as it does, as my life does right now. Dr Gauntlet says the whole idea of the data set is a positive one. The benefit of the National Disability Data Asset is that it can hopefully make sure that policy is designed to ensure that no one is left behind are better, they're more effective, and the outcomes of those policies can be properly assessed. Deborah Grok, SBS News. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. I'm Bertrand Tungendame, thanking you for your company this Monday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yellow.